Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host, Father Miles Hickson, and joining me today as co-host is our friend of the podcast, Father Creighton McElveen, who is filling in for Father Wesley Walker, whose wife just had a new baby. Great to have you, Father Creighton. I'm excited about today's conversation and think you have a lot to add. We're excited to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to, excited to be here and excited to be able to participate, uh, be in the studio, as it were, not just the man on the ground. And excited <laughs> for Father Wes and for Caroline bringing their new baby into the world. Very exciting time. Yeah, for sure. And he definitely needed some much-deserved rest and a little break from the podcast. And like you said, it's great to bring you into the studio rather than being on the ground. And so even though I'm sure it's most people's just favorite segment of our podcast, Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner, today we won't be doing one because it's kind of just one giant Father Creighton Anglo-Catholic <laughs> Corner. And especially since today we will be discussing devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of our God, Jesus Christ. So as a quick disclaimer up front, we aren't really going to be talking today about the theology or the dogma surrounding the Blessed Virgin Mary. We actually already have an episode discussing this. It's episode 28, where Bishop Chandler Jones does an excellent job, in my opinion, and because he might be listening it's definitely in my opinion, walking through the church's traditional theology surrounding Mary. So if you're kind of interested in the theology and a little bit more of the biblical verses and text wrestling with who is Mary and what should we say about her, what should we not say about her, go and listen to episode 28. Our episode today is going to be built on the foundation and just the assumption, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> that we all have kind of a common understanding of who Mary is and the role she plays in salvation history and then in the life of the church. So we're focusing on devotion, devotional practices. Let's jump right into it. So let me ask you, Father Creighton, why devotion to Mary? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great place to start. Um, I, had a, I had a professor in, in seminary when I took a class on Mariology and Effectively, he asked the same question. He said, why do we, why do we have a devotion to Our Lady? Why do we uh, talk about Mary and spirituality? And his answer was, I think, really telling. He said, Christology and Mariology are intimately linked. If we divorce Mariology from Christology, we wind up with goddess worship. And so Christology... And Mariology in this relationship is not one where we place Mariology necessarily on the same footing as Christology. But in, in some sense, Mariology is, is a uh, subsidiary or derivative sort of discipline uh, in the broader conversation of, uh, about Christology, about who Christ is. And so when we say why devotion to Our Lady, we're really asking why is she important in the life of the Christian, and why is she important in relationship to the dogmas and doctrines we have about her son? And, and I think those questions are all answered beautifully for us in the praying and worshiping life of the church. Yeah, and I would, I would probably go so far as to say that just as Mariology is a necessary component of Christology, 
you don't have a proper Orthodox Christology if you don't have Mary somewhere in there, because we have to believe in the incarnation, and Mary is a key figure in that uh, in that teaching and belief. So just as Mariology is a necessary element of Christology, I would say our devotion to Jesus Christ as God has a necessary component of Marian devotion. And so you kind of said earlier, uh, Mariology without Christology becomes what I often hear it called Mariolatry, which is Mary idolatry, goddess worship, you said. I think we can flip that and say that Christology or devotion to Jesus devoid of Mary is Nestorian at best, or really some form of docetism, which is, you know, this ancient heresy where Jesus only appears to be incarnate. And so you get yourself away from the incarnation. And this, I think, is where a lot of Protestants might wrestle with devotion to Mary, is that the larger Catholic tradition, I wouldn't say they put the incarnation and the atonement, the crucifixion at odds with each other, but I would say the incarnation is more of a fountainhead for our understanding of Jesus and that the atonement is kind of his entire life and the cross fits in with an understanding of the incarnation. So the incarnation is hugely important. A man dying on a cross doesn't save you, but the incarnate Lord of history does. And so the incarnation is key to under unlocking all of salvation history. And Mary is an important component of this. So that's, I, I think I think that's absolutely true. You know, there's the famous saying, "If you're not Marian, you may be Arian." And and I right. think that 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 uh, in in a in a goofy sort of way makes the point that understanding our Lord and understanding our Lady and the fact that our Lord is the Logos incarnate, that He is our Lord and Savior, our God and King, and understanding that He takes His human nature from a real woman. Mary, who walked the earth, who lived, who was born herself, who had a life. So he is truly human in taking his, his, his uh, human nature from her. That all has extraordinary impact on uh, the various controversies that, that came up in the church. Uh, it, it refutes Arianism, it refutes Nestorianism, it refutes all these different things. So it's kind of this in some sense, this kind of marker for orthodoxy, uh, having this this understanding and this uh, practice of of Marian devotion. Yeah, I've I've heard I heard an account one time of we'll, we'll go to the east for this of kind of a lay Russian woman talking to I was talking to someone from America. I don't remember the details. He wasn't a pastor, but he was visiting from America. But he was most definitely a Protestant. And she was asking him questions about what you believe and kind of what you do and this and that. And she said, do your churches have icons of Mary? And he was like, well, we might have a painting here and there. And she's like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Do your churches pray to Mary? And he said, oh, no, absolutely not. We're Protestant. And she was horrified because her, the logical conclusion in her mind that she said to this man was, then how do you worship Jesus? So she had been ingrained in this, in this theology that Mary is not Mary for Mary's sake. And that if you want to have a good relationship with Christ as Lord, man, she, Mary is right there next to it. So that to me is a huge piece of answering the question, why devotion to Mary? 
It's the Sunday school answer because of Jesus. That's why we're devoted to Mary. As Archbishop Fulton Sheen would, would often say, you can't love Mary more than Jesus. And so you're kind of free to love Mary, to venerate her, because Jesus loves us all wonderfully and so much that he died for us. And so he's going to fulfill that fifth commandment to honor his father and mother. And he's going to love her over and above and beyond uh, any that we could love her. So you're safe to love Mary because Jesus loves her too. Exactly. So I think it's helpful for us to maybe explore this question a little further. Why devotion to Mary? And I want to look at five kind of titles. I wouldn't say these are actual formal titles of Mary. They do touch on some of the more formal titles of helping us understand what it's like to invite ourselves into Marian devotion. And so the first is Mary, model Christian. Yeah, uh, this this is this was a really good place to start. It's for most of us, we're going to talk about our experience as Christians. We're going to talk about what the Christian life looks like. And if we understand Our Lady as the model Christian, we begin to have a better understanding of what our Christian life looks like. So from a, a, a very basic standpoint, we talk about our Lord. You know, there's famously the what would Jesus do bracelets uh, from the 90s. And there's this, this idea of, of that is true, that we're all called to live uh, a Christic life, a Christ-centered life, a cruciform life. But that's perfectly modeled for us by Our Lady. Her life of obedience, her life of purity, her life of chastity, and her life of service. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Her life is the life that every Christian is called to live. She is, she is a human. Our Lord is God and man. And, and we don't have time or the space to, to break all that down in the theology of it, but it's true. That's the dogmatic affirmation that Christ is God and man. And Our Lady is, is man. She, she is the first and greatest Christian. And as the first and greatest Christian, she becomes for us this example, this, this person to look to who is completely devoted to her son and who lives the life that all Christians are called to live. I think if we just take the account of the Annunciation in Luke's gospel, you actually find the model and mission for what it means to be a Christian. So the angel, a messenger, comes to Mary and announces the good news. The good news is you're going to have a child. This child is going to be the savior of the world. He's the Messiah. Okay. Mary responds to this good news with, be it unto me according to thy word. As you just said, her great fiat. Fiat in Latin means let it be. So she accepts the word of a messenger. The word of God is then conceived in her by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. She then carries the word about and bears forth fruit, Jesus, to the world. This is what you and I and every Christian, we are called to. We receive the gospel from a messenger, whether it's probably a human preacher. You know, I have heard of dreams of Muslims having angelic visitors, but most of us, it's a human messenger, a human preacher. We receive the word of the gospel. The Holy Spirit overshadows us in our baptism. 
we conceive of the Holy Ghost, or we conceive the Word of God in our heart. Christ dwells richly in us. And then we go into the world because we've accepted fiat, let it be unto me according to thy word. And we bear Jesus to the world around us. She's the first and greatest and model Christian for all of us. And so as we're devoted to her, I think we understand that what happened to her in reality and history happens to every single Christian by spiritual analogy. Every Christian is marked with a Marian character. I think that's exactly it. I mean, in so many ways, and, and we, could, we could probably spend a few hours just talking about Our Lady as the model Christian. Um, so, so many ways where she gives us uh, an example of a faithful Christian life. Uh, more than just, yeah, there's the idea of fecundity, the fruitfulness of Our Lady. We're also called to be fruitful. Uh, we're called to be submissive. We're, we're called to say yes to God, to respond to grace. In a sense, it's sort of an active receptivity. We cooperate. Uh, there's, there's so many features of her life that, that we are told about in Scripture that become normative for the Christian. And that normative pattern uh, really does show us that there is a there is a Marian way of being a Christian. And I think that's important. And I think from this idea of Mary model Christian, we, we can move to a second title, Mary model of the church. And so Mary embodies and encapsulates not just for the individual Christian, but for the church as the whole. She, in a spiritual sense, is the bride of God, right? Overshadowed by the Holy Spirit who brings about the fruit of her womb, Jesus Christ. What takes place in Mary is a picture on a small scale that takes place for the entire church, the wedding feast at the end of history, being assumed up into heaven and ruling at the right hand of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Yeah, there's, you know, a fa famously, uh, one of the titles for Our Lady is Mater Ecclesiae, right? Mother of the church. She gives birth to the first fruits of the new creation to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are incorporated into Jesus Christ. The church is his body. The church is the body of Christ. And so Our Lady both kind of brings forth the church, uh, not in an ontological or, or salvific way in the way that Christ does, but she does participate in the church's birth. She also, when we look at model Christian and model of the church, we're basically saying the same thing. It's sort of one is microcosmic and the other is macrocosmic. That the individual Christian has this particular model, this saying yes to God, to cooperating with grace, all of these things. And then the church as a body, as one unit, participates in that as well. The church is called to be faithful. The church is called to be fruitful, to go out and make disciples of all men. Uh, that's spiritual fruitfulness. All of the, the, the new uh, catechumens and, and hearers that are coming into the church are brought into the church and, a, and are given a new birth. A birth actually takes place. And so Our Lady as model of the church is a really beautiful way of understanding the Christian life of service, 
evangelism, mission, and cooperating with grace. The church is this beautiful example of our life of participating in grace where we receive the sacraments and we receive the means of grace. Our Lady models for us what it means to be devoted and committed to our Lord who is dispensing his grace and his presence to us in the church. So there's, there's, there's a beautiful sense of uh, working out our salvation and uh, striving for holiness that takes place in Our Lady's life and extrapolated to the life of the church. I also think that because she's the model of the church, meaning she's the model of kind of the Christian people, and again, this is closely connected with the first title, Model Christian, she kind of stands as the hinge between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And so there's a lot of Old Covenant typology that goes into Mary. She is the new Eve who says yes to the angelic visitor rather than no to the demonic visitor. And she is fruitful rather than consuming the fruit. She brings about spiritual life rather than spiritual death. So St. Irenaeus is, is bold enough to say she is the cause of salutas. She is the cause of salvation in that moment of the Annunciation. She's also the new Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant bore within itself the, the word of God, the tablets. It bore within it the manna, the bread of heaven. And it also bore within it Aaron's priestly staff that was fruitful though dead. So Mary in this sense bears within her the, these uh, Jesus Christ who fulfills these other various typologies. She's, she's kind of a new temple that bears the presence of God. Uh, go back a little in salvation history. She's the burning bush that bears within it God's own presence, but is not consumed. And so what we see then is Mary's model of the church becomes model of this old covenant typology that passes into the new, takes place in her, and then can be applied to the church as a whole. So let's talk about a third one. And this one is a little bit different direction. Mary, model of contemplation. Yeah, what a, what a good thing to talk about, especially nowadays especially during a pandemic when we have all this time on our hands uh where we can we can engage in contemplation and hopefully we can sort of sanctify this unfortunate uh world condition through our prayer and through our our time spent with god very fundamentally we are told that our lady held all these things in her heart the things, the prophecies, the words of the angel, all of this stuff that is just paradigm shifting, that's just life changing, that's world changing, Our Lady contemplated. She held them in her heart. These mysteries, these miraculous signs and wonders. She didn't simply say, well, it's all happening to me. I'll just go along with it. She internalized it. She took into herself, into her interior life, and she meditated. She contemplated. In spirituality, we often talk about contemplation, contemplative prayer, meditation, meditative prayer. And one really helpful way, I think, of, of understanding those 
concepts because mysticism is 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 hard to talk about. It can be off-putting. It can be uh, so other and so otherworldly that people think that's not for me. I, I don't have that gift or whatever. But ultimately what it boils down to, and, and Hansers von Balthasar does a really good job of talking about this in his book called Prayer. Contemplation is beholding God. It's being in God's presence. And Our Lady, in a unique and beautiful way, beholds her son, beholds God. She literally holds him, <laughs> which is an amazing thing to think about, that when our Lord was a child, she held him. She wiped tears from his eyes. She gave him bedtime kisses. You know, these, these are things that we don't often think about. And I, I know having lots and lots of, of, of close friends and family that have kids that when it's just you and your child, you have this moment when this infant child is in your arms or when this toddler child is running around, you think about them. You think about what their life is going to be like. You think about who they are and the kind of person they will become. And you do it in a way that's just different. I love my nieces and nephews, and I hold them, and I love them, but I don't engage with them in the same way as if they were my own child. But Our Lady does. She holds the infant Christ, and she says, what will your life be like? She knows. She knows that he will save the world. You know, I hate I hate the song, Mary, Did You Know? Uh, don't we all? Because... Of course she knows. The angel of the Lord has told her. And so she gets to engage with, in a beautiful way, the unfolding work of God for the salvation of man. And she thinks about it, and she holds it in her heart. Which is the beatific vision, which is salvation, to just behold God and his work for us. And as we'll talk about later, I think when we get to uh, some of the practicals of Marian devotion is that the goal of actually doing Marian devotion is, if you could imagine it, Mary taking you by the hand, leading you and saying, here is my son. And her teaching you is, as, uh, as it's often said, in the school of Mary, to behold Jesus Christ perfectly. Because no one can behold a child as well as a mother especially a mother prepared before all eternity like this, the mother of God. It's, it's just staggering and beautiful, and it's so important. Uh, as, we, as we pray, as the church prays, as the individual grows in the life of prayer, I think we can really look to Our Lady as this model of, of prayer, this model of contemplation. The most beautiful prayer ever written, ever recorded, ever proclaimed by a human is the Magnificat. She takes all of the prayers of praise and provision in the Old Testament. Think of the song of Hannah and others, and she fulfills it 
And she gives us this fantastically moving prayer, hymn of praise, extolling the virtues of our Lord, extolling the goodness of God, and looking down at his creation and making a way of providing salvation, of fulfilling the promises that he gave millennia ago. And she teaches us, she gives us a, a paradigm for prayer and for presence and for contemplation. And then our Lord gives us a paradigm of prayer. You know, the Our Father is this prayer that we pray. And we, we pair those two together and we, we have this beautiful uh, expression of, of the, the Christian life of, of petition and praise and thanksgiving and confession of sins and affirmation of God's goodness. Um, it's, it's just staggeringly beautiful. It's all there. So a fourth one that we can talk about title is Mary, Most Gracious Advocate. So this is the part where we move from Mary just not being kind of an example or a type or a picture of something, but also she becomes active in the life of the church and in the life of the Christian. So I think it's important to kind of ground this conversation in something that I don't find a lot of people are super familiar with, and that is in the Old Testament, the Israelite kings held special places of honor for their mother, the mother of the queen, or excuse me, let me say that again. The mother of the king was the queen. When we think of queen, we think of wife of the king, but it was really the mother of the king in Old Testament Israel that was properly and held in the highest honor as queen. And she had a special role of advocacy that is bringing petitions and requests before the king. And the king would answer those because it was his mother. And so this gets mapped on into the New Testament with Mary and with Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Israel's line of kings, with Mary being his mother. Right. So we, we get this, this typological fulfillment again uh, of, of Our Lady, the Queen Mother, seated at the right hand of her son, where she becomes an advocate, an intercessor. All Christians throughout the world in time and space are given the task of intercession. That's part of what we do as Christians. We intercede on behalf of the body for each other, uh, those we know and those we don't know. It's something, it's something foundational to the Christian life. And again, we see it on display for us in this heightened and, and uh, extraordinarily important way in the role of Our Lady as the Queen Mother. Petitions are brought to the Queen Mother in ancient Israel, and she passes them on to, the, to her son. We get this kind of displayed for us in a way with, with King Solomon. There's, there's a beautiful example of this. King Solomon is always connected to his mother. And as our Lord fulfills all these type, typologies and, and as our lady uh, participates in that fulfillment, we get the same thing. And, and a good New Testament example of this is the wedding at Cana. 
And so in the wedding at Cana, we see that our Lord is invited to a wedding. He goes with his mother. Sounds like a pretty fun wedding, if you ask me. All of the wine gets uh, consumed and, and they're out. And it seems from the text that Our Lady, seeing the lack, the privation of the guests, takes to her son the request for more wine. And our Lord does not chastise her. I think this is an important piece here. What our Lord, when he says woman, what he's actually saying to our lady is he's saying Eve. He's he's identifying our lady with the first woman, Eve, our mother, in the, you know, in the sense of, of what C.S. Lewis tells us in Narnia, we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Our Lord is conflating and relating the action of Our Lady with that of Eve. This is an affirmation of the new creation, the fact that he is the new Adam and she is the new, the new Eve. And he listens to her. This is the kind of amazing thing about it is he listens to the advocacy, to the intercession of Our Lady. And when he does, we see, if, if I can analogize, if I can be like Origen and, and pull out some symbolism here from, from this story, she goes to the servants and she tells them to follow the commandments and the instructions of her son. If we break down the story, the guests at the party, that's the church, our Lord is our Lord, and the servants that Our Lady goes to that help prepare the vessels, those are the clergy. The word that's used for the servants is diakonia. It's, it's diakonos. It's this, this idea of servanthood. And so we have Our Lady interceding for the church and Our Lord acting through the service of his ministers for the good of the church, to bring grace into the church and to bring his presence into the church and made known in the assembly. So we get this really beautiful sense of the life of the church and the intercession of the church and Our Lady and Our Lord listening. If that's true in the material world that we live in, if that's true 2,000 years ago at Cana, how much more true is that of Our Lady in heaven advocating and interceding on behalf of the church? I think that's right. I think that when we uh, go to Mary and ask for her intercessions, I think that we are affirming that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic lineage, Israel's kingship, and that he has fulfilled it in all aspects, and that he has set up Mary, not on her merit, but out of his sovereign choice to be his mother, and that we are affirming this entire scope of salvation and the role that she has in it. And so I think that that's an important piece to kind of our devotional aspect of Mary, is that 
Jesus wants to answer his mother's requests. And so his mother is going to have requests like she did and the wedding feast of Cana. And sometimes those requests are directed at her to go to her son. It doesn't sidestep Jesus. It actually incorporates the whole of Jesus. And I think this is a part in our Marian devotion that we see that this is not a zero-sum game. There's not just one point. If it goes to Jesus, Mary gets zero. And if it goes to Mary, Jesus gets zero. That's not how this works. It's We can pour our love and devotion to Mary and Christ is glorified. And when we glorify Jesus in his incarnation and in his role in life, I think Mary is honored because she played a role in that. So that was a sidebar. Let's talk about this fifth title, Mary, mother of Jesus and mother of us. So this is where we get really personal because not only is Mary mother of the church, she is mother of the Christian. Right. And we, we see this exampled for us in the New Testament when our Lord is crucified on the cross. I mean, just imagine that, that in this time of agony and suffering and passion and pain and death, our Lord does something remarkable. At the foot of the cross, there are two individuals, Our Lady and St. John, the beloved disciple. And our Lord looks down from the cross and he looks to St. John, and he says, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And without wanting to get into too much of this, this is an indication that St. Joseph is no longer with us, and that our Lord does not have blood siblings, because what he's doing is he's providing, in a temporal sense, the care that any good Jewish son would provide for his mother in his death. So he is giving Our Lady to St. John that she will live in St. John's household and be taken care of by St. John. And I think historically you're right. We should call this disciple St. John. But all through the gospel, it's just the beloved disciple. And Origen brings this point out in his commentary that the beloved disciple is intended to be a place for you and I as readers to enter into. We need to be, if we want to be the beloved disciples now, we need to be like that beloved disciple. And so he talks about reclining on the, on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, and he makes Eucharistic connections. How do you recline at the Supper with Jesus? You faithfully take the Eucharist. But he also says, and then we must also receive his mother as ours. You stand at the foot of the cross and receive the mother. So you enter into that beloved disciple picture that John paints for us, which I think is of himself, but he's opening it up to all Christians to have that same encounter with Jesus. And so through that, it's as if Jesus from the cross looks at you and me and everyone else who follows him and says, behold your mother. And this is picked up then in Revelation, again, a Johannine book, in Revelation, where in chapter 12, we get this mysterious woman who, by the way, is called the Ark of the New Covenant, who is then uh, chased by a dragon. She has a child. Is she Israel? Is she the church? Is she Mary? I think the answer is yes. But it says very explicitly, and her other children. And so I think John there, or the writer of Revelation, is giving us a hint that Mary is Mater Ecclesia. She is mother of the whole church. 
both as a corporate entity and she can claim each Christian as her individual child because we are incorporated into Christ. He is our brother. She is our mother. I think that's that's an important piece is if we take it seriously that we are incorporated into the body of Christ, if we become adopted sons, if we become co-heirs in the kingdom, that there is this spiritual sense of motherhood. There is this relationship to Our Lady that we take on, that we are brought into, where the care that she has for her son is extended to all those that make up her son. And on top of that, a mother will always advocate for the perfection of her children. That's what mothers do. And so if Our Lady's singular focus, if her singular purpose and mission is to express her love for her son, she is completely devoted to Christ, unwaveringly devoted to Christ. Everything she is points at her son. Then she is going to also take in her care and her maternal love all of us and say, have you met my son, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Come, have an experience with him. Come, let me introduce you to him. Come, let me put the two of you together to spend time together. So she will bring us along the way. So those are just five titles or five ways to think about Mary and our devotion to her to help us orient the conversation. I think, though, that we should end kind of this part, this segment, by asking then, what does a Marian, quote-unquote, spirituality or piety look like in a Christian life? Like, are there some characteristics that we should be taking up in our Christian life if it's going to have that kind of Marian character? Yeah, I think the first one that we that we should probably talk about is, uh, and we've mentioned it already, but the fiat of Our Lady. I think it's important to look at Our Lady's example in the spiritual life. She says yes to God. She doesn't say no. She doesn't act in her own will. She does not act in her own fallenness in a sense. She conforms her will to God's. She says, be it unto me according to thy word. Our Lord constantly tells us to be transformed, to be renewed, to follow the will of God, right? This is the will of him who sent me. And so I think that Our Lady is giving us this great example of, of following God's will, of saying yes to God to respond to grace to be open to God's gift, to be open to his initiative in giving us grace, and then not to simply do nothing with it. She takes the gift, she receives it, and then she lives the life of grace. She continues to, in a sense, incarnate grace. She follows the will of God. She stays obedient and faithful. And, and I think that's the first piece we really need to understand in the, in the sense of, of Marian spirituality is this idea of faithfulness, of openness, of conformity to God and his will.
I like what you said there, that idea of incarnating grace. That is definitely a character, not just of Mary, but of all Christians. We've received grace through the gospel, through the sacraments, and we can incarnate that, actually bring it into fruition and actuality in our lives. And that is a very Marian character. And so the other one I would add to this is, is just that basic activity, but most profound activity of interceding for others. Prayer is a mystery. Uh, there's a lot written on it, but the most basic thing we can say about it is just do it. That the Lord likes us to pray for others. He uses our prayers for others to his glory and in the, I would say, ministration of the world, just as Adam and Eve were given stewardship over creation, so do I think the church has stewardship over the world now through our prayers and intercessions, most particularly those who continue to intercede for us in heaven. And so we take on a Marian spirituality when we move ourselves, I would say, into the background of our own prayer life and push others forward. Do you notice that in the Gospels, Mary does kind of have this background image. When she comes forward, it's profound and very meaningful. But a lot, many Protestants will critique kind of Catholic devotion to Mary because the New Testament says a lot more about Paul and Peter and even John than it does Mary. But when it does speak on Mary, it's a very, very profound speech. So Mary has this humble character, and I think humility can come into our intercession for others, where rather than always just bringing forward our own wants and needs and, um, and desires, we put others first, just as uh, Mary's fiat really put the world above her own desires, her own needs, because what are they going to say about me? How can this happen? You know, I mean, she's going to be scorned as a, a virgin with child. Yeah, right. I've never heard of that happening. But she put the salvation of you and me above her own um, worldly status, needs, and desires. And I think, like we said at the very beginning, if that is, in a sense, not the most Christic thing ever, I don't know what is. You <laughs> yeah, know, she, sure. she's just, she is just doing what Christ tells us to do. And we take on, we can call it this Marian shape, but it's all cruciform. It's it's all focused on the life Christ tells us to live in service and sacrifice and humility. It's beautiful. And that's why my favorite devotion to Mary is one I'm about to create, and it's going to be what would Mary do bracelets. I love it. Well, speaking of devotions, we want to transition now to some more practical conversation about what are some Marian devotions? What do you and I recommend, Father Creighton? And where can people kind of uh, get get introduced to this if they aren't already? I think a great place to start is the Angelus. So the Angelus is a very short devotion set of prayers that is really centered on the incarnation of Jesus. But as we said earlier, that means Mary can play and does play a crucial part of this. So the Angelus is just a couple statements, verses from John's gospel, interspersed with the Hail Mary, and then a concluding collect to the Lord, asking that we would be able to participate in his passion and resurrection. So it's very beautiful. It's very short and to the point. Traditionally, it's said at six in the morning, at noon, and at six at night. 
And so if you pray offices, you could do that before your daily office, after your daily office. It could just be kind of your lunchtime prayer. It takes roughly 35 seconds to say. And for me, this is a great place to introduce someone to Marian devotion because it is most clearly and unequivocally Christocentric. Yeah, I mean, what what is there more to add to that? Uh, it's it's this beautiful sort of rhythm that that we engage in in in, in our prayer life that is so focused on on the incarnation, so focused on the life of Christ and how Our Lady plays uh, a part in that, and how she uh, intercedes for us, and how she helps us. Uh, to live the life that Christ calls us to live, to be in conformity to him, because she's in conformity to him. It's, it's, it's a beautiful devotion, and it's short and helpful. Um, typically, a, a lot of churches will ring the Angelus bells um, at the times appointed in the day to pray the Angelus, which is a beautiful way to uh, sort of sanctify time and space uh, hearing Angelus bells ringing from a church is one of my favorite things in the world, uh, both because it calls you to pray. Oh, I haven't said the Angelus today. I should do that. Uh, but it also just proclaims to the world the truth of the gospel that that God became man so that man might become God, so that we might live the life of grace and have eternal life with, with him. And in a very traditional Western Mass, the Angelus will follow after the Mass. So I know at your ordination to the diaconate, we ended the Mass as the rubrics would have us, and then immediately we went into the Angelus. And I just thought it was a very beautiful and fitting conclusion to, to what we've just participated in, which is the Incarnation. And so then to add kind of this Marian dimension to the Incarnation and us to enter into it, man... It doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't. And I would also recommend just to, to, to talk to the listeners a bit. Uh, if you have a St. Augustine's prayer book, the Angelus and all the, the devotions we're going to talk about, they are found in the St. Augustine's prayer book. They're also in the St. Gregory's prayer book, which is the kind of ordinariate version of the St. Augustine's. They're in the St. Uh, Ambrose prayer book, which is the Western Rites version of the St. Augustine's prayer book. They're all over the place. It's easy to find. So don't be intimidated and say, where do I find it? Uh, you can get them online. It's great. Easy to find. Let's talk about hymns. So th when we think of hymns, I don't know what the listeners think of. I think of, you know, the 1940 hymnal, which to me is a mixed bag. We won't go into that. I wish I could think of the old English hymnal, but I've yet to really uh, become that much accustomed to it. But when we think of hymns, I think a Marian hymn is something that we're like, I don't really know of one, except maybe Sing of Mary, Pure and Lowly. Like that's one that comes up. Which is, a, which also, is a beautiful hymn. It's fantastic. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I'm not knocking that hymn. I'm also not knocking um, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. That second stanza of Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones, where it's a, it's a line of praise and prayer to Mary is one of the most beautiful lines of kind of recent Western hymnody in my mind. It's just, I just see the choirs of heaven opening up and there you are, lead their praises, more gracious, most advocate. Oh, it's wonderful. 
However, there's ancient Latin hymns is what I'm talking about here with the Western hymns. And the one that I would point you listeners to, we're not going to go through it line by line, but Google, you can find a good translation on Wikipedia or something. This one is called Ave Maria Stella, Hail Star of the Sea. And so this is a very beautiful hymn. And it points to, I think what you'll see is a lot of the points that we've been talking about. They really come out in the church's hymnody and prayer life. So that's a Western one that I really appreciate. I think the East sometimes gets Marian hymnody spot on. And so every divine liturgy in the Eastern church has a Marian hymn right after the consecration of the elements. Again, incarnation, the sacraments are the continual work of the incarnation in the life of the church. So boom, where does the church immediately turn? A praise of Mary because of her role and function in the incarnation. So the one that's always in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is called Axion Estin in Greek. In English, is it's called It is Truly Meat. Look it up. It's beautiful. And then the one I actually like more is the liturgy of St. Basil, which only shows up a few times in kind of mainstream orthodoxy. I believe the Coptics do it a lot more often. And this, this hymn is called All of Creation. And it's a hymn to Mary that all of creation rejoices in thee, O full of grace. And it has one of my favorite lines in any hymn that's related to Mary. He made thy body into a throne, and he made thy womb more spacious than the heavens. And what a powerful line to reflect upon that the, the God whom the heavens could not contain is contained in thy womb, O Theotokos. I just get cold chills thinking about it. Incarnational kind of devotion with Mary there. So those are hymns I really recommend. I would I would just completely agree. Um, the Ave Maristella is just, it's just so fantastic. It's hard to beat. Um, I mean, my favorite line from it is establish us in peace, transforming the name of Eva. And that's Eve. And if you rearrange Eva, you get Ave. Which oh, yeah, is totally a play of words. It's just just amazing play of words in the same way that in Hebrew, Adam is a play on on dirt on on the ground. Uh, so you get this beautiful sort of uh, uh, sort of typology recapitulation going on. The other hymn that I really like uh, that's it's a it's more modern in, in the sense of of it not being like a thousand or fifteen hundred years old is the Lord's hymn, and that is the Lord's, as in L-O-U-R-D-E-S, the place in France, not L-O-R-D-S. Um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful hymn uh, about Our Lady, and the refrain is the Ave, Ave, Ave Maria. Um, and it's a lovely line, you know, thou reignest now in heaven with Jesus our King. It's, it's fantastic. Um, so I, I, I would heartily endorse all of those hymns that we've, that we've talked about. Uh, they're, just, they're just good for your soul. No good Catholic devotion would be complete without images and pictures and stuff. I hope that everyone is on board with that after our most, one of our more recent episodes about beauty and, and imagery in the devotional life of the Catholic Christian. So, favorite icons and images of Our Lady. Let's start with like a more a more Eastern image, a more Eastern icon. My favorite is Our Lady of the Sign. 
And this is one that shows Mary arms kind of open and Christ is in her womb as he looks like a little man in her stomach, but he's surrounded by blue. He's surrounded by heaven. And it actually is just a visual depiction of that line I said earlier. He who the heavens could not contain was contained in thy womb. So I like the icon because that idea um, is just very powerful to me. Yeah, it's it's an absolutely stunning image. Uh, I would say I think my that's definitely on the, the list of favorite favorite images uh, for me as well. But I would say that the, the one I sort of go to most often, I have one in the hallway at uh, in my house right outside of my office is Our Lady of Perpetual Help or Our Lady of Perpetual Sucker. Um, it's the older title. It is just such a beautiful image. And it's essentially Our Lady crowned, holding Our Lord crowned, you know, your typical sort of Madonna and child image. Uh, but it's just this beautiful um look into the relationship between Our Lady and Our Lord. Uh, the pious legend claims that the image of Our Lady of Perpetual Help is a copy of the first icon painted by St. Luke uh, on the, the meal table of the Holy Family in Nazareth, which is just a beautiful sort of expression of, of what images and, and the incarnation and, and the sacred meal, the Eucharist, all these different things. Uh, so I just, I just have an affinity to this image. Uh, the, one, the one I have at my house was gathering dust in an antique store. Um, it's about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. I'll say it's amazing what you can find in antique stores and thrift stores. I went into one the other day and it had an upstairs. I walked upstairs and I turned the corner and there is a, it had to be three and a half feet tall with this massive ornate frame. And it was a, it was an oil on canvas hand painted of our lady in the, in the moment of her assumption. And it was $400. And I said to Liz, where can we put this in our house? And she said, there is not a wall big enough in our house or in the church for that painting. We are not getting it. I was like, I can't just leave it here. I'm afraid someone's going to get it who doesn't appreciate it, which is me being prideful. But it was amazing. Anyway, I, I find all sorts of good stuff. I have, I I mean, have that's, the same moments where I'm like, that. Need, I need to save that. I need to bring that and home and save it. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's great. Well, I love the ones when Our Lady of Perpetual Help or just Madonna and Child and Mary, you'll notice her hand gently points to Christ. How much theology, that's that's everything we've been saying today in a in a gesture. She points to her son as she looks at you. Oh, it's beautiful. Now, in terms of like uh, Western art, maybe more recent stuff, I give for honorable mentions or ones that I would hang up in my house if I, if I could find them. Uh, you have the Coronation of the Virgin, by Diego Valaquez, which is a beautiful, beautiful painting that shows kind of a Mary's gift and reward in heaven. And then two that I would mention by William Aldo. Oh, I can't say this. I should be able to say this. I, I lived in Paris for a summer and I took three or four years of French. Anyway, <laughs> shouldn't his name be Guillaume? Anyway, Guillaume Adolphe Beaujeu. Bu 
Bougie. How do you say Bougie? Okay, let me get this. Two others by the same painter, William Aldo Bougie, is The Virgin with Angels. Now, this shows Mary holding the infant child, but she's in heaven. She has the crown of stars. So, kind of an apocalyptic image. It's, it's Revelation 12. And then he has a version. It's in essence the same painting, but rather than Mary in heaven holding infant Christ, it's it's a pieta. It's Mary holding the dead Christ after his crucifixion. And I just showed this to you, Father Creighton, before we started recording. People on the internet have done a mock-up where they've taken half of one painting and half of the other, and they combined them together. And so it looks like Mary's face is split down the middle. And on one side, she's holding Christ. On the other side, you can tell she's holding uh, the dead Christ. And people will write the comment or kind of beautifully add it into the painting. The line from the Christmas hymn, What child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap sleeping? And it just beautifully connects that Mary was there from beginning to end of our Lord's salvific life. So I love those paintings. Um, What else would you add to this? Well, those are those are some of my favorite paintings as well. Um, but I, I want to add um, I want to add a statue to the mix. Surprise, surprise! Um, and there are variations on this theme, just like there are variations on all of these. Uh, different artists have have given different takes on um, Madonna's and child and 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 other scenes. But one of my favorite statues is is any statue that depicts Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. And this is a very, very old way of depicting Our Lady in the Western Church. Um, we're pretty confident that the first statue in the Western Church was a statue of Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. And it may have developed from a uh, some type of bas-relief, some sort of carving uh, on a piece of wood that then was carved into a statue, that sort of idea. Uh, But it's Our Lady seated, and on her lap is seated the infant Christ. And so she is the seat of wisdom because our Lord is the wisdom of God. He is wisdom with a capital W incarnate. He is the fulfillment of all of the wisdom typologies in the Old Testament and she becomes a throne. She is the throne on which Christ is enthroned. She held him. She is the ark, right? She is the, the, the new ark of the covenant. And on top of the ark of the covenant is the mercy seat, the helasterion. That is the place where God comes and dwells and passes judgment on his people. And so as the new ark of the covenant she is the throne. She is the mercy seat from which Christ passes his judgment, which is his love and his mercy and his salvific action for the world. And it's just a gorgeous image. And related to that image, which some of our listeners may be more familiar with, is the famous statue and image of Our Lady of Walsingham. The image that we're most used to seeing with Our Lady seated on a throne and then Our Lord seated on Our Lady as the throne is a take on the Our Lady seat of wisdom. Uh, and it's, it's, just a, it's just a fantastic 
way of, again, emphasizing the fact that this is Christocentric. Absolutely. So another set of Marian devotions that definitely deserve mention are the Marian antiphons. And you can find these if you have a St. Augustine's prayer book beginning on page 258. Yeah, the first one that's mentioned is, is uh, it's just gorgeous. Um, it's the Alma Redemptoris. And I we're not going to, you know, read all of them, but I, I will give you a little piece from it. Thou maiden who bearest thy holy creator to the wonder of all nature, ever virgin after as before, thou receivest that Ave from the mouth of Gabriel. Have compassion on us sinners. It's just a beautiful, a beautiful uh, affirmation of the incarnation and to tie it back into the image Father Miles mentioned, it's sort of a linguistic way of expressing Our Lady of the Sign, uh, telling that, you know, giving us that theology in words and in prayer. Yeah, these are, and so what these antiphons are, are they are kind of little hymns or little prayers with a collect afterwards uh, that, that are centered on Our Lady and on the role that she has in the incarnation. And they were traditionally said after Vespers or in connection with Vespers in the traditional church. And so these are things you could add in your own evening prayer life or whatever you do for offices as kind of a way to end the day as a, as a focus on the incarnation, bring it back home and focus on those things we mentioned earlier, Mary model of Christian, Mary model of the church and so on. Uh, and they do change throughout the year. We won't go into all these details because you won't remember them just listening to us. But go, all the instructions are in the St. Augustine's prayer book. And also, if you just type in on Google, Marian antiphons, all of this comes up. This is still very common practice in Western Christianity to incorporate these antiphons. And there's other translations and colleagues out there that go along with them. And they do follow the sort of round of the liturgical calendar. The antiphons engage with what's going on more broadly. And, and so the, the Alma Redemptoris is, is said from the beginning of Advent uh, to the Feast of the Purification. And so there's this focus again on, on the bearing the word in her womb, uh, the Ave Regina Celorum, which is another one of these antiphons, is, uh, ends on Maundy Thursday, and you've got the Regina Chaley, which is... Which, by the way, is one of my favorites. It's the shortest. But you just, after meditating on the sufferings of Christ and perhaps looking upon like an image of Mary holding Christ and like the sorrow of a mother losing a child, now imagine the announcement coming to her. It's very quick. Let me read it. O Queen of Heaven, be joyful. Alleluia. Because he whom so meetly thou bearest, alleluia, hast, hath risen, as he promised, alleluia. Pray for us to the Father, alleluia. So it's, it's interspersed with the alleluias that are coming back in because of Easter. And it's just simply saying the gospel. Christ is risen. Did you know that, Mary? Of course she does. So pray for us to the Father. It's just, it's a celebratory anthem in the presence of God and the whole company of heaven. Oh, it gives me cold chills thinking of the joy that Mary would have that first Easter Sunday. 
And that's the joy you and I should have at the announcement every year. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Exactly. And it's after we've, you know, we've had the Angelus and then you would cease saying the Angelus during Eastertide. And it just, again, it's one of those things that punctuates our year. It punctuates the liminal, liturgical life of the Christian. And so we can kind of mark these seasons. We can look forward to the change. That's something that I really enjoy is I actually really look forward to when things go away and come back. So like during, uh, during Lent, you know, when we bury the Alleluia and we stop saying it, I look so forward to being able to sing the Alleluia on Easter and then to pray the Regina Chaley and I get the chance to say it like four times, five times, six times, however many times it is with the, including the, uh, the, the collect and everything. I, I get to enjoy this shift. I really get to have the, the, the joy of, uh, anticipating something. Yeah. Uh, I think that's beautiful. And that's such an important piece of liturgical theology and, and the church calendar and why we do what we do. So we want to kind of conclude this episode by asking kind of just personal questions about ourselves, And so I want to know, Father Creighton, kind of just your reflections in your own life about Marian devotion. What is, what is it like day to day? What does it mean for you to kind of have a Marian character about devotion? Let's just talk personal as, as I'm a priest, you're a deacon who aspires to be a priest what does this look like in our Christian life and what we would share with those around us, the people we pastor? Yeah, I think that's that's such a great place to to bring it after we've talked about the bits and the bobs and we've talked about kind of some of the particular devotions out there. I would say for me, I can't imagine a spirituality, a a an engagement with the Christian faith that isn't Marian, personally. I just can't deal with it. (laughs) Um, It's such a a key feature of my... If if some of our listeners haven't been listening or haven't engaged with Father Creighton, they might not know that unlike a lot of us in the modern... Anglican sphere, uh, especially in America, uh, who are converts, Father Creighton is actually, believe it or not, a unicorn. He is a <laughs> he is a cradle Anglo-Catholic, and so when he says he can't imagine not having Marian devotion, it's because literally he doesn't know a time when it didn't exist in his own spirituality. <laughs> well, to 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 be fair um, and to be open and honest, you know, I did, I did have the flirtations with, um, evangelicalism and things like that in my, uh, in high school and things. So there were periods where they were definitely not focused on it, but the important piece there is I missed something. I always had the thing in the back of my mind saying, what about the rosary? What about our lady? And that the periods of, of my life where I haven't uh, engaged with those devotions out of choice because I was, you know, not in a good place or I was rebelling or whatever it was. It was 
always something there saying, you should pray the rosary. You should, you should do these things. Uh, it just felt right. Um, and when I was young and when we were in, in Sydney, um, you know, Sydney is notoriously, um, low church, uh, notoriously, um, not as, uh, friendly to Anglo Catholics. Um, and so, you know, even in worshiping in Sydney and having morning and evening prayer, you know, having a, a kind of even song focused parish, um, what is the center of that sort of evening devotion, but the Magnificat? And so even as, as Anglicans, if we don't have the sort of foundation, um, you know, we're not used to praying the rosary, we're not used to hearing the Angelus, you know, we come from a different aspect of the tradition, or we're learning about Anglo-Catholicism. Our own prayer book tradition that is so widely known, regardless of where you fall on the kind of spectrum of high to low church, Anglo-Catholic, evangelical, middle of the road. We all know the prayer book and we all know evening prayer. And so in, in evening prayer, we have this beautiful sort of Marian sort of center of praying and singing and proclaiming the hymn of Our Lady, the Magnificat. Yeah, I would even say participating in Marian joy, exuberance, worship, not worship of Mary, but worship with Mary of, of God. And so, yeah, there's a very Marian character built in. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's something that we can all share. That's something we can all sort of uh, sit down around a table and have as common ground. Um, and we can kind of build out from there. Um, for me, I have particular devotional practices in addition to, to saying offices and things like that. I'm a huge fan of litanies. I love praying litanies. Um, I, I frequently try to pray the litany of the sacred heart, uh, but I also frequently pray the litany of Our Lady of Walsingham, um, which is a, a very beautiful uh, litany. And you can find it in the, the St. Gregory's prayer book if you are at all curious. Uh, and it's a, it's a fantastic litany. Um, really does a good job of, of kind of showing us the example of, of talking about Our Lady's life uh, as, you know, she's called the woman of hope, the woman of chastity, all these different things. And um, litanies are a big part of my devotional life because I think they're very centering. I think they're very meditative for me. Um, and then obviously, in addition to the Angelus and the Regina Chaley and the Marian Antiphons, uh, I try and fail, but I try to say a daily rosary. That's uh, an important aspect of, of my spiritual life. Uh, I think I've got rosaries squirreled away in every bag and every pocket in my pocket, in my cassock, in, in the glove compartment of the car, uh, just to, to remind myself that, hey, you said your rosary today. <laughs> uh, so 
it feels right. It feels at a very experiential level, uh, like I am engaging with the broader thrust of, of Catholic Christianity in venerating and honoring Our Lady. And I'm just, I'm just trying to be a good son sitting on her lap, focused on our Lord. Mm. Yeah, I can really resonate with some of the things you said just there, especially about the experiential level. So uh, if you if you haven't listened to the first few episodes of this podcast, and you might not know my own history, I am a convert to Anglicanism and Anglo-Catholicism, and much more so, I was the most rabid Protestant you ever met in college. I questioned everything as I was coming into this tradition, everything. And I was slow and I was stubborn. And so in some ways, the Lord took me through that journey because it helps me as I'm ministering here in Tennessee to a lot of people who have very anti-Catholic sentiments that I'm able to say, I get it. I was there. So as Bishop Chad has often remarked, Marian devotion is kind of the final frontier for Catholic Christianity. It's often that part that people want the liturgy, they want the ritual, they want incense, they want chanting, they want the seven sacraments. But Mary, it ends up being kind of that the hardest and last pill to swallow. So for me, what I came to was more of a rational point of saying, this is so objectively a part of the tradition of the church and of Catholic Christian experience that I need to set aside my rational prejudice and just enter into it. And so that's what I did. I just started praying the rosary. I started doing the angelus. And there would be times where my brain would critique what I was doing. But what I realized that was that my heart was very receptive to this. It made sense internally, even if I couldn't always wrap my head around it. Well, of course, the more I studied, the more I learned, the more I would go back and forth in terms of listening to my heart and my head. I came to, I of course have theological justifications for doing this devotion, but what I finally walked away was, is that the experience of it is so profoundly Christocentric. It's so profoundly centered on the gospel, especially the rosary, walking through the mysteries, that I walked away every time more in love with Jesus than I had been. And so I said, I have to put kind of these latent Protestant criticisms I have to the side because this is making me a better follower of Jesus. Because Mary is doing what the tradition says she will do. Turn then thine eyes, most gracious advocate. And after this, our exile, show us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That's from the, uh, the hell holy queen. She showed me the blessed fruit of her womb, Jesus, time and time again. So I'm sold on it. And um, I'm Johnny come late to a 2000 year old tradition, but it's good. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode today. The astute listener will have realized that we neglected to mention one of the centerpieces of Marian devotion, and that is the rosary. And so Father Creighton and I are going to come back in a bonus episode next week, and we're going to spend an entire episode just discussing the rosary, how to pray the rosary, what it's like, and how to use it in the Christian life, and what it does for us. So be sure to join us next time in that discussion. But for now... It's time for us to move into our favorite segment, which is not today, 
Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic Corner, because this whole episode has been kind of one. But what we're into. So what are you into, Creighton? Well, um, one of the things that I've been into is I picked up for the, I think this is the second full read-through, uh, I picked up Pope Benedict XVI's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. And I enjoyed it the first time immensely. And I have been uh, on a bit of a liturgical theology kick uh, lately. And so uh, I am rereading two books and then I've got a set of books that I'm going to be reading for the first time on liturgical theology. So I reread Brant Petrie's Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. And I'm now rereading... Uh, Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy. And every time I'm blown away when I come up on these chapters, like chapter five on sacred time is just mind-blowingly good. And amazingly understandable. Like, like yeah. it, it, most things written on time just lose me because I'm not, I, I'm not that smart. And so... But his writing on sacred time, I remember putting the book down going, it all makes sense. Right. right. And I still don't know what's going on, but it's all going to be okay and make sense. It's so good. Yeah. So that's, I've been trying to wrap my mind around time and how we understand time in the liturgy, how we understand our participation and things that are in a temporal sense, two thousand years ago, um, but in a in a in, in a real and tangible sense, happening right there in front of us, uh, it's uh, it's been really good. It's been very beneficial to to sort of meditate and think about sacred time, the calendar, etc. But it's also been very, very, very uh, intense. It's 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 propelled me into having to to really think about some of these things. Well, that's great. What I'm into today is not nearly as scholarly. I'm into the Nintendo Switch. So uh, my wife's family has recently acquired one for the family. There's seven kids. And so there's been a little bit of sharing and using it around and I've been able to use it. And what I love about the Switch, I am reliving my childhood. So I'm playing like none of the new games. It's all old, old school Mario Donkey, oh, yeah. Kong, Donkey Kong Country, Donkey Kong Country 2, Super Nintendo Mario Kart. Come on. Ah, so, so good. I've just been enjoying it, playing the games and having some good conversations with a friend who was actually on the podcast. His name's Nate Adams. He's a he's a poet. He's an artist. He does all sorts of things uh, engaging that that sphere w and with his Christian faith. And he's really been having great conversations with me about the role of gaming in, a, in, in life, in reality, and what it can teach us about God and about our relationship with others. So interesting stuff. I don't have a lot of developed thoughts, so I won't share them, but I've enjoyed playing the Nintendo Switch. Oh, now you make me want one. Oh, man. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us today. And thank you, Father Creighton, for filling in for Father Wes. I know this was such a great burden for you to come on the show and talk about our mother <laughs> it was it's an absolute pleasure it's 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 fun to be able to 
engage on this topic specifically, but also to to come into the studio and have some fun. My pleasure. Well, it was a pleasure to have you. Listeners, if you like what we're doing, help others find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, and be sure to share us with your friends. If you want to continue the conversation with us, which I'm sure this episode will spark, you can follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. Please send your questions and show ideas to thesacramentalist at gmail.com, and you can go over to Patreon and support The Sacramentalist for just $5 a month and thus becoming a Patreon saint. Now, as a way to end this episode, Father Creighton is going to lead us in the Angelus. And so if you have a St. Augustine's prayer book, this is found on page 18. The angel of the Lord announced unto Mary, and she conceived by the Holy Ghost, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. That we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. We beseech thee, O Lord, pour thy grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion we may be brought unto the glory of his resurrection. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.